Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, and the economy and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode nine. It's titled, What Rate of Return Should You Expect from Investing? Now, this question was asked to me by one of my high school friends. A few weeks ago, we were in Salt Lake City. with There were, there were three of us friends from high school. I hadn't, we hadn't all been together in 20 years. And we did, I guess, whatever high school friends do when they get together. We played some golf. We had some sushi. We went to a movie. Saw Tom Cruise and Edge of Tomorrow in 3D IMAX. And this particular friend just finished dental school a couple years ago. He went to dental school with five kids, gave up his career in engineering, moved down to Phoenix and started dental school. And he's been out a couple years. And he asked me, well, first, let me step back. Here's the thing about newly minted dentist. When we went to Edge of Tomorrow, 3D IMAX, Tom Cruise, I wear glasses at movies and with a 3D, total chaos in the movie theaters as all these things are coming at me. And, you know, I barely hung on to the plot. Half the time I was dizzy just trying to get my, my orientation. After the movie, he says, did you notice that Tom Cruise's smile is crooked? And I have to admit, I didn't even notice, one, that Tom Cruise even smiled in the movie. It was not a happy film. And, but... Here's a dentist, and, and, he, and so I Googled it, and sure enough, Tom Cruise's smile, his teeth are straight, but his smile is off-center. That's a dentist for you. But he had a good, very good question, my friend, and, and we're sitting around because he's looking, he's in his mid-40s, dentist, obviously some debt from dental school and for the new dental practice, and he's thinking, at some point I want to retire. I love being a dentist, going to be a dentist for... 20 or 25 years, but I need to save more and more for retirement. And in order to know what to save, he wanted to know, well, what, what rate of return can I expect? If I invest in the stock market, if I invest in the bond market, what, what rate of return can I expect? Great question. And it's one that I'm going to answer today, and I'm going to show you how you can calculate those estimated returns for yourself. Now, it's, it is critical because it does impact how much you could save. For example, if you wanted to save a certain amount of money every year, the same amount for 25 years until you had saved a million dollars, how much would you have to save assuming a given rate on your investment portfolio? Well, if you could earn 8% per year investing in order to save a million dollars in 25 years, you would have to save $13,678 per year. But if you only could earn 4% each year, 
you would have to save almost double that amount, $24,011 per year. And so when we look out into that, into the future, it's critical to understand, well, what rate of return can I get from investing? Whenever anyone asks what rate of return can I get from investing, the very next question should be over what time period? Because it is very different to estimate what we believe the stock market or the bond market will do next year and what we think it will do over seven to 10 years. I used to work for a company. I was a, I was a money manager, and we would work with endowments and foundations, university clients, environmental organizations. And we would structure, and we would, they would ask us, and, and as part of our service, we would estimate what we thought various asset categories, such as stocks, bonds, emerging markets, real estate, private equity, would do over a seven to 10 year time horizon. And, and you do this with foundations because they want to come up with a target asset mix. And the inputs into that target asset mix is what rate of capital markets assumptions, what rate of returns will be, what the volatility will be, and then how the various asset types move together. That's called correlation. And so we would do that analysis, and, and we, would, we would get together as a research group, and we'd come up with our best estimate, and I'll actually show you some of what I'm going to teach you today is the very same process we would do at my prior firm. But I had one client, a university client, that every year they would ask me, what do you think the stock market will do next year? What do you think the bond market will do next year? And I, I didn't think a whole lot of it. They didn't really say why. And... I would give them an estimate and highly qualify it because it, it, it's very, very difficult to determine what market's going to do one year from now. But I, I would do it and I didn't think anything of it. But one year they came back to me and said, how come the stock market isn't doing what you said it was? And the, the, at that particular year, the, the markets were falling. And so I, I started probing a little bit, asking, what, what exactly did you do with that information? It turns out they put it into their accounting budget. And so they had their budget in terms of what income they thought they were going to generate for the, their certain portion of their portfolio. And then lo and behold, when they didn't generate those returns and that income and those gains, some, some board members were upset. So they came back at me, and, and I swear I said, you, you, you really shouldn't do it that way because here's why it is so difficult to estimate returns for next year. The data, the underlying economic data doesn't necessarily change that often, nor do the level of corporate profitability. In other words, there, there's, it just doesn't change, change that much from year to year. Sometimes it, it drops dramatically, but in a typical year, it, it just doesn't change. Yet, Markets go up and down. They're very volatile. The most erratic thing about markets is the participants, the investors, the humans, their emotion, their cycles of fear and complacency and greed. That's what causes so much volatility. And that's why it's so difficult to determine what markets are going to do next year. But over a seven to 10 year time horizon, it's a much simpler problem. And the way to do it 
is the most significant influence on future long-term investment returns is the starting point. Just like a runner who is preparing for a 10K race or a marathon, one of the most significant factors in how well they do is their preparation, how much training they, ha they have. Wh where are they at the starting point in terms of their preparation? Investment markets are the same way. The fixed income or bond market, the return that you're going to get over the next 10 years is highly dependent on the existing yield of the portfolio. And I'll explain that in the more detail in a moment. Same way with stocks. The most significant factor into what stocks will return over the next decade is the starting point. Their current dividend yield, earnings growth, and, and a wild card that I'll talk about also in a few minutes. But let's, let's start with bonds. Bonds are debt instruments. When you invest in a bond mutual fund or a fixed income mutual fund, they hold dozens, if not hundreds, of individual bonds securities. And bonds pay, they're a debt. So when I buy a bond, a company has, has issued that bond, they've borrowed money. And for borrowing that money, they promise to pay a certain rate of interest. And then at the end of the term of the bond, be it 10 or 20 years, then they'll pay back the principal. That's how bonds work. It'd be really simple if interest rates always stayed the same. If you went out and you bought a $10,000 bond, if it paid 5% interest, then you would get that interest every, every quarter, or every year, and then at the end of 10 years, you'd get your $10,000 back. What makes bonds difficult is that rates interest rates change. And back when I was in college, I had a finance class, probably one of my first finance classes. The professor was Barn Grover. And I look back in the class and the only thing I remember from the class was something that he insisted that we remember. And the way that he, he actually, he almost did a song and dance to get us to remember this one sentence. And, and he would sit and he would clap and he would say, as interest rates go up, Bond values go down. And he might have even wore an outrageous outfit to, to illustrate that point. And I, I'm sitting up there looking up. I'm in that, almost the last row looking down on his bald head. And he's saying, when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. So, and, and until I realized that many, many years later, how important that fact is that bond prices move inversely to interest rates. And so, back to our example, if you bought a $10,000 bond that is earning as an interest rate of 5%, if market interest rates go up 10 to 10%, I can't, you could go out and buy a, another $10,000 bond that was earning 10%. But here you got this old bond that's earning 5%. That doesn't seem fair. Well, markets adjust for that. The value of that original 5% bond will fall precipitously to where suddenly that interest payment you receive every quarter, every year, if you divide that by the new price of the bond, it'll equal 10%. In other words, the value of the bonds fall to such a level that you are earning a market rate of interest. 
The actual dollar amount that you're receiving in interest doesn't change, but if you divide that dollar amount by the value of the bond, that will always be the market interest rate. And that's important consideration. That's why when interest rates go up, bond values go down. Conversely, when bond prices fall, when interest rates fall, bond prices go up. Now, what does that do if we want to figure out what we think returns of the bond market's going to be as we look out 10 years? Well, even though as interest rates fluctuate, the value of bonds fluctuate, what we find is the starting point, the best estimate of the return for bonds is what they're currently yielding. And by yield, I mean either they yield to maturity in other words, if you have a, a fixed income mutual fund that holds hundreds of bonds, if you look it up, there is a yield to maturity of those bonds. In other words, what interest rate yield will you earn if all those bonds are held to maturity? That's different from what's called a SEC yield, which the SEC calculates, which is just based on whatever the bond fund interest paid in the last year. They subtract fees and don't worry about it. Ignore the SEC yield. It's a proxy, but what you really want to focus on is what's called the yield to maturity or sometimes the yield to worst. The, The numbers end up being about the same. The only difference between yield to worst is some bonds can be redeemed early or they can be called. And because of that, it adjusts a little bit. But if you can find the yield to worst for a bond fund or the yield to or just to yield to maturity for the bond fund, they should be very close. And just to give you an example of a bond index or the overall bond market, there's a bond market proxy or benchmark card called the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. It's currently yield to worst is 2.3%. Now, if you went out and bought non-investment grade bonds, and such as a, a fund that, that mirrored the U.S. corporate high yield bond index, that particular index is yielding 4.9%. And so you sort of have all investment-grade bonds yielding about 2.3%, non-investment-grade or high-yield bonds yielding 4.9%, and most mutual funds are are somewhere in between. So the PIMCO total return fund is yielding about 3.3%. And now let's get back to this whole thing that my professor Barngrover taught me. As we look out over the next seven to 10 years, more than likely interest rates are gonna go up because we are at historical lows for interest rates. And as interest rates go up, the value of the bonds within that bond mutual fund are gonna fall. And, but then you start to earn, as, as those bonds start paying off interest, you're reinvesting them at those higher interest rates. Think about that, interest rates went up, those bonds continue to pay interest every quarter. I got to do those bond managers have to do something with that money. They go out and reinvest it in other bonds. And, and so because of that, even though the value of bonds falls, as you reinvest at higher interest rates, they, they essentially offset you. You're, you're at some point earning much more on those that reinvested interest, and it offsets the loss that you incurred when the bonds fell because interest rates rose. I hope that makes sense. But at the end of the day, all you have to remember, even if the math seems complicated and you've got interest rates going up, bonds everywhere, 
what you need to remember is the best way to estimate what the bond market will do over the next 10 years is whatever the fixed income funds are yielding today in terms of yield to maturity or yield to worst. So a reasonable ex as estimate right now, if we look out the next de decade, is about 3.5%. 3, 3.5%. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com slash david. netsuite.com slash david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Now, what about stocks? Again, the best estimate of what stocks are going to return over the next 10 years is the starting point. And for stocks, there's three components for the starting point. The first one is the dividend yield. Most stocks pay some type of they distribute a portion of the profits in the form of a dividend. So, for example, large company U.S. stocks right now are yielding, in terms of their dividend yield, about 2%. So that's, that's the first component, the first starting point. The second component that builds up into what a reasonable estimate of stocks over the next decade is what corporate earnings will do over per year over the next 10 years. And, and what we find is over the long-term corporate profits, the growth in corporate profits tends to track the growth of the economy. Or as we talked about in, in I believe it was episode seven, how the economy is measured. The economy is the measure of output and that the, the form or it's, it's measured, the, the statistic that governments put out that measure the output called the gross domestic product. So in the U.S., since 1990, GDP, pre-before inflation, so the U.S. economy has grown at an average annual rate of 4.5%. Well, in 
We also find, though, that corporate profits, as, measure, as, as reflected in the S&P 500 index, which is a measure of large company U.S. stocks, those profits have grown very much the same amount, 4.4% annualized. So in any given year, profits can, can vary dramatically. We've talked about in the last couple episodes that profits could fall 50% or more during a recession only to recover dramatically when the recession's over. But over a 10-year period, we have to come up with some assumption for what we think corporate profit growth will be And the best proxy for that is what the economy is doing. And so if we assume profits and the economy are going to grow at about 4.5% before inflation, so if we back out inflation, it'd be about a 2.5% growth rate. So 4.5%, we can add that 4.5% profit growth to the 2% dividend yield, And that gives us an estimated return for stocks over the next 10 years of around 6.5%. Now, there's a wild card, and that wild card is what are investors willing to pay for those profits? And, And right now, for example, the investors are willing to pay 19.4 times historical 12-month trailing profits for the S&P 500. Now, that's just a complicated way of saying what's the price earnings ratio? The PE ratio of the S&P 500, a measure of US large company stocks, is 19.4 right now. And if investors were willing to pay 10 years from now that same amount, 19.4 times earnings, the return for stocks over the next 10 years, assuming the dividend yield stays around 2%, corporate profit growth is about 4.5%, would be 6.5%. Now, this, this price-earnings ratio is a wild card because historically, the price-earnings ratio, or what investors have been willing to pay for corporate earnings, is about 15.5, not 19.4. So we're above average. If we found 10 years from now investors weren't willing to pay as much, let's say they were only willing to pay 17 times earnings, not 19.4. Even if we had a 2% dividend yield, even if profits grew at 4.5%, because investors were willing to pay less for those profit profits, the overall return over that 10-year period would be 5.2%. So not 6.5%. Now you're down to 5.2%. Now, these returns are really... Low. These are, these are estimates of what we think will happen over the next 10 years. We don't really know, but we got to come up with some estimate. And again, for bonds, the most realistic estimate is whatever bonds are yielding right now. For stocks, it's a function of the dividend yield, an estimate for corporate profits, and then that wild card of price-earnings ratio. For bonds, 3 3.5% is realistic. For stocks... Assuming investors are still going to be willing to pay 19.5 times earnings, a realistic expectation is 6.5. If you put 50% in stocks, 50% in bonds, a return over the next 10 years would be about 4.75%. That's low. And it could be even lower if investors decide they don't want to pay as much for earnings. What do you do about that? My friend, 
the dentist. What should he do? Well, for one thing, he's going to have to, to save more because a realistic return is only going to be 4-5% return for his overall portfolio. Now, you have an advantage if you continue to invest every month as part of your 401k because the best estimate of what returns you're going to be are, are, is the starting point today. Yet, a year from now, that starting point might be much different. If the stock market fell significantly a year from now, if you continue to invest, well, starting conditions are much better, and so estimated returns will be higher. If bond yields go up a percent or two within the next couple years, your existing portfolio will suffer. I mean, that your, whatever your existing portfolio amount is, that return's sort of locked in. But if you continue to add new money in, you're investing at better conditions. Stocks get on sale, they get more attractively valued, and so the expected return goes up. So we've looked at ways to estimate the return for the portfolio. The bottom line is the returns are low. You can compensate for that by saving more. You could, we also use this example of, just for stocks, we use large company stocks. There are other types of stocks out there. For example, emerging market stocks are yielding, their dividend yields about 2%. Their valuation in terms of what investors are willing to pay in terms of the price-earnings ratio is about the same as U.S. stocks, about 19.2. But emerging market corporate profit growth will, tends to be higher than U.S. because emerging markets or developing markets, their economies are growing faster. Now, the final thing one can do if the starting conditions right now are poor, so estimated returns are going to be low, is be patient and wait for opportunities. Don't necessarily, that's what I do in my portfolio, and that's what I called in some of the recent episodes, investing on the leading edge of the present. I'm willing to be patient right now and wait for those asset classes or asset categories to get cheap, something to sell off so that the expected return goes up. And, and those are sort of the two ways to do it. You can be patient and wait and then move into certain assets as their expected return goes up. And again, the expected return is calculated by the analysis we did, sort of whatever the starting point is. The alternative is just keep saving more. If you're consistently saving over time, then you will, even if you're using a, a buy and hold approach, riding the roller coaster up and down, as we talked about, you will be going into the market at different price points, different starting conditions, and it, and some will be more attractive than others, and that will work out long term. the The hardest part is those that are already retired. If you're already retired, you, you got your nest egg, and 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 so there is no adding more money when things are more attractive. The only option is to hold some money in reserve, and then allocate it when things get more attractive. So that's episode nine. It was titled, What Rate of Return to, its, in, to Expect? You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. You can also subscribe to my Insider's Guide where I give you a preview of what the upcoming episodes are. I let you know things that didn't make it in the podcast and just other interesting information that you might that just didn't get into the podcast. I also am now making transcripts available for podcast episodes. So if you go to moneyfortherestofus.net, you'll be able to find 
transcript, at least the ones I've done. I've done episode seven and eight so far, and I'll add the back ones if you want to be able to reread what I've said or share it with somebody. Also, I'd appreciate, I'd love if you would, if you could leave a review on iTunes for this podcast. If you like what you hear, that that helps the ranking within within iTunes and allows more people to hear the show because they, they're able to discover it more. Finally, what I've shared today is for general education only. Even though I've talked about specific rates of return, these are not predictions. I have not considered your risk profile. Any return I've shared is not a promise of that you actually can get that return. And all everything I shared is just to help you become better educated on money, investing, and the economy. Thanks.